We're moving into the study of um, an incredible king that we're going to spend, we'll be in the new year talking about him, but it's, the, it's Hezekiah. And if you look at the amount of verses that are dedicated to Hezekiah, um, it, one, one commentator has said that you can tell what the commentator thinks about the king when you look at the amount of verses that they dedicated to them. And really, comp- the only other one that compares to Hezekiah is Solomon when you get to this chat to um, the book of Kings. And so, um, so it's a lot there, and I think it's an incredible story. And so in some ways, we're going to take it slowly. Instead of working all the way through a story in one time, we're going to break it down piece by piece because I think we'll have a lot to learn from him. And so with that being said, let's pick up in verse 1 so that we have enough time to finish today. 2 Kings 18, verse 1. I'm going to read four verses, then I'm going to stop and explain something, and then we'll finish up. It says, In the third year of Israel's king Hosea, son of Elah, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, became king of Judah. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, son of Zechariah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the high places, shattered the sacred pillars, and cut down the Asherah poles. And then look at this. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses made, for until then the Israelites were burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Let me stop right here. Remember, almost every king we've been reading about, what what has the author said over and over again? He said things like, you know, they did okay, but they didn't take down the high places. They, they continue to let people worship in other areas and not worship God in the right way. What does Hezekiah do in his kingship? He takes all of that away. And then he does something interesting, something that in Second Chronicles, which also talks about Hezekiah, they don't mention here. It says that he took the bronze serpent that Moses made and he destroyed it. Now, if you know, if you've read the Old Testament, maybe you've come across this story in Numbers chapter 21. I'll kind of explain to you what was going on. The Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, and they're trying to get to the promised land, but they've messed up, and so they've got time that they're, they're wasting, and they're walking around. Remember, they have to wait a whole generation before they can go in. Well, they get angry, and they get mad, and they begin to grumble at God, and they say, God, it would have been better if we were back in Egypt again as slaves. They said they're tired of eating that miracle bread that's showing up on their doorstep every single day. God, we're tired of you providing for us. We just want to go back. Why won't you care for us? In another area, they say, you know, God, I just, I miss having the, the fruits and things that we had in Egypt. Well, God hears these things and he gets angry and he sends in fiery serpents is maybe what your translation says or venomous snakes that come into the camp and they begin biting people and people are dying by the thousands they realize they messed up and so they go to Moses and they say Moses can you go to God and tell him that we are sorry we messed up we should not have done that and so Moses goes to the Lord he intercedes on their behalf and God tells Moses this he says take make a bronze serpent Make a substitute, right, for this snake that's biting them. And he says, put it on a pole and put it up in the middle of the camp. Uh, I'm sorry, in the middle of the camp. And for anybody who has been bitten and then looks at that bronze snake, if they look at it, they'll live. Now, if you've read the whole Bible, what you know is that Jesus, in John chapter 3, he takes that very picture of what happened. And he says, in the same way the serpent had to be lifted up, the Son of Man also has to be lifted up. And then he goes into John 3.16. You've maybe heard me say before, it's that very passage that I heard on the night that I became a Christian that drew me to Jesus, where the, the, the command that was given was just look and live. You've been bitten by sin. 
and it's going to kill you. Jesus then was hung on the cross for you so you could live. Now, here's the problem, though. What we see in this passage is that whereas God made this bronze serpent to be a symbol, a symbol to remind the Israelites that they were to trust in him, that God was the only one that could save them, they had gone past that and they began to worship the snake. They've been worshiped this, this divine relic of sorts. And it's become so, it had become so widespread that they'd actually given the snake a name at this point. And it says the name is Nehushtan. Anybody want to guess what Nehushtan means? Anybody? You would think that would be something cool they came up with. It doesn't. It just means the bronze thing. That's all it means. You had all these opportunities, and it just means the bronze thing, okay? But they end up worshiping this bronze thing, and he sees it's a problem, and so he's, he destroys it. I think there's a principle that we can learn from this right here, and it's this. That if we are not careful, we can end up replacing the worship of God with the worship of God's gifts. See, this was something God had given them to remind them of who he was. And they had taken that and began to worship that instead of God himself. There's actually an old Puritan illustration of this. And it goes, it's like this. Suppose a loving husband were to come home to his wife one day and provided her with all of these rings and these jewels. And he says, I love you so much. I brought you all of these jewels and these rings. And then the wife took those and she began to look at the rings. She began to admire the rings. And then she began to love the rings. And after a time, she forgot about her husband. The only thing she could take, think about were the gifts that her husband had brought her. That's exactly what's happening right here. This thing that had been brought to them That's what they began to worship. So with this, may we remember this principle. Let us make sure that we never love the gifts more than we love the giver. God has blessed you in many ways. Make sure you're not worshiping those blessings. Let's move to verses 5 through 8. It says, Hezekiah relied on the Lord God of Israel. Not one of the kings of Judah was like him, either before him or after him. Verse 6, he remained faithful to the Lord and did not turn from following him, but kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. The Lord was, look at this, the Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its borders, from watchtower to fortified city. As I told you at the very beginning of this this passage that Hezekiah was a great king. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. We're going to read about some of his failures, but he was a great king. So great that there is a phrase that's used to describe Hezekiah that's only used of four people in the Old Testament. In verse 7, it says that the Lord was with him. Did you know that was only said about Abraham, Joseph, David, and Hezekiah? Think about that then. This relationship that they had was so so great that it's only used of those four great people. Now we know some of the great things that he did because 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles talks about some of his accomplishments. We just read about some that he took down the high places. He refused to give in to the king of Assyria. You know, he defeated the Philistines. We also know that he opened the doors of the temple again, which his father Ahaz had closed. Think about that. The king of Judah before him had literally closed the doors of the temple so they could not worship God there. And then on top of that, he led the Levites to sanctify themselves and restart their ministry in the temple. He reinstituted the Passover feast for the people. And then, I love this, he invited the remnant of the northern tribes to worship with the people of Judah in the temple. He says, hey, come back. And then finally, what do we see? That he returned the nation to the Lord so that Yahweh heard their prayers. 
This could be said like David that Hezekiah was a man after God's own heart. His heart beat for the Lord. With that being said, what I want to do just quickly today with a few minutes that we have left is talk through four marks of Hezekiah's life that we should desire to emulate. Four marks of his godly life. The first one is this. When we look at the whole life of Hezekiah, which we will do, we see that Hezekiah wholeheartedly trusted in the Lord. Look at verse 5. It says, Hezekiah, the word is relied on the Lord God of Israel. Now this word translated relied right here, it's the word bata. And I love what the literal meaning of this would be right here. Here's what it would mean. That he leaned his whole weight on the Lord. That's what this means. How did, he, how did he trust the Lord? It says he leaned every bit of his weight on it. That is in some ways the greatest definition of faith that we have. That we lean everything we have upon the Lord. Can I give you the oldest illustration of faith and trust that we have in the book? It goes something like this. When you walked in here tonight, you probably walked by the front pew and you picked up a handout of the Bible study and you picked out a hospital list. And what would you do next? You probably walked over to your pew and then you sat down in your pew, didn't you? Can I tell you what you probably didn't do? You didn't get down on your hands and knees and inspect every single screw that's in the pew to make sure it's going to hold up. That would look weird, you know, people crawling through. And you're like, well, I'm just reliving my childhood where we crawled all the way through the pews, right? No, you didn't do that. You didn't put your hands down there and test to see if there was any soft spots in the pew. You didn't do those things. What'd you do? You got your stuff and you just plopped down in it. Why? Because you trusted the pew, right? There was literally not a thought in your mind that the pew was not going to hold you up. And so you sat there. That's literally the definition of faith. That what we were called to do, what we see Hezekiah do right here in this moment, is that he so leaned on the Lord, he so relied on the Lord, that he willingly just sat. (laughs) Now, compare this to this thought. Imagine if you didn't fully trust in the pew. And so you got to the pew, and you began to just basically halfway hover over the pew and for the entire evening that we're in here you halfway sat in it and the other half of you was just trying to hold your weight up because you didn't know if it was going to be there I can tell you what was going to happen them legs going to be burning after a little bit (laughs) and then sooner or later your legs are going to fail and you're going to have no choice but to fall into the pew right now think about this with our faith if that would be that exhausting for you to hover over that pew to hold on how much more exhausting is it to only halfway trust in the Lord and what you do is you, you say, I believe in the Lord, but then the other half of you trusts in your own power. Can I tell you, if you're living your life like that, one day your legs are going to give out. <laughs> They're going to give out. Can I challenge you to do this? Fully lean everything upon him because he's worthy of it. And as, you, as you've heard me say multiple times, has there ever been a time in the scriptures and in your life where he's not been worthy of that trust? What are we called to do? What do we see in his life? He fully trusted in the Lord. And here's, I have this one sentence in here because it's going to matter when we get to the end. What we see is that simple trust in God is foundation, is foundational to every other element of the godly life. If we don't trust him, nothing else is going to work. But if we allow that to be the foundation, then we can build a life upon it. Number two, we got 10 minutes. Okay, number two. We see that Hezekiah tenaciously held fast to the Lord. Look at verse 6. It says, this translation says, He remained faithful to the Lord. This word that we use to translate into remained faithful, let me give you again this Hebrew word, is dabak. And this word actually means to cleave. 
to cleave to him. You think about in the New Testament or in the Bible where it speaks of a, a, a wife cleaves to her husband, right? It's the picture here of almost like ivy cleaving to a tree. It's become so wrapped around the tree that it's basically the tree, right? Or you could say it this way, that really this picture conveys when you understand all of Hezekiah's life that we'll study, that of a person who hangs on to dear life to the God that he is trusted in. And that means he holds on in the face of obstacles, in the face of distractions, in the temptations. His only option is to cleave to the Lord, to hold on to him tight. When my, in 1996, my father was helping lead the students at the Meadowbrook Baptist Church where I grew up when I was a little kid. And you know what happened in 1996? Anybody remember? The, the Olympics. How about that one? Okay, yes. You were, you were in Atlanta at that time, right? So you know, okay. The Olympics. We're in Oxford about an hour and 15 minutes away. So it was coming to Atlanta. And my dad decides, he says, hey, what if we do this with all the teenagers? Let's put on our own Olympics here in Oxford, Alabama. It's going to be a great way. We'll bring a lot of teenagers in. And he said, but no Olympics is good without an opening ceremonies. If we're going to do this right, we're going to do a real opening ceremony. So he had parents and other church members turn their cars into floats and decorate them all. And they dressed up as like people from other countries. And they began to, you know, wave through and drive down the road. Had someone literally with like a torch that ran in front of the whole group, like the Olympics. Well, then my dad decided he was going to bring up the rear of this opening ceremonies but if, you, if you've, you've heard me tell stories about my dad, he's not going to do anything small. Everything he's going to do is going to be big. So what my dad proceeded to do is tie a ski rope to the trunk of our family car. And my dad then held onto the handle and he, he decided he was going to roller skate behind the car that my mom was driving as they drove through the opening ceremonies. Now, my dad grew up in the 70s and 80s. What was popular in the 70s and 80s? It was rollerblading, right? And my dad is an incredible, even today, he can still put them on. And I mean, he's going backwards, dancing to the music. I mean, he was the guy in high school who would win the dance competitions in, uh, with rollerblades. So he said, this is the moment I'm going to ride behind, dressed up in like full toga gear, like the old Roman toga gear, waving at people. So he's holding the ski rope. My mom's driving. My brother and I are in the back seat. And we're going down the road. My dad's waving at people. He's doing tricks, you know, full Full spins around, you know, with, with it, going backwards at times. And then he sees that there's a break and there's a curb and there's grass. He decides, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to jump off the road onto the grass and then jump back onto the road and it's going to be really cool. What he does not realize is that rollerblades do not roll as well in the grass as they do on pavement. And so as soon as his feet hit the grass... The skates stop and he goes forward. Well, for some reason, I don't know if it's just fear or what, he did not let go of the ski rope. So my mom is still driving the car as my dad now is being dragged behind the car with down the road, <laughs> screaming, stop, stop. Finally, someone, you know, flags us down and my mom finally stops the car and we look and my dad has been dragged, I don't know how long, uh, down the road in this way. Why? He had held on so tight to that ski rope that there was nothing that was going to cause him to let go of it. See, here's why I say this. That is the very picture in many ways of what he is saying that he, relied, that he remained faithful upon the Lord, that he held on so tight he was not going to let go of God. He was going to cleave tight. Now, what is the temptation that we face? You see, when we have trials that come upon us and life gets hard, 
the temptation we face is not to cling to God, but to let go of God. We get scared. We don't know what's coming up next. We want to do it ourselves. We let go. But here's the thing. When we have laid down the foundation of complete trust in the Lord, the real question is, why would we not cling to him? What better person to cling to than our Lord? What if this, what if our attitude was like that of Jacob when he was wrestling with God? And what did he say? He said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. What about this picture of clinging in that way? God, I'm not letting go in this time. What do we see first? That the foundation of a godly life, it is trust, complete faith in the Lord. Second of all that's tied with that is this idea of clinging to the Lord with everything that we have. And then third, we see that Hezekiah steadfastly followed the Lord. So at first, you know, it says that he remained faithful. In the next words, it says, and did not turn from following him. Now, at first, this point can almost seem incongruent with the, with the second point. How can we be both clinging to the Lord, but yet at the same time pursuing the Lord? Right? Why is there a pursuit if we're clinging on to him? Well, let me explain it this way. Who here, let's start from here. Who here has been a believer for 40 years? Anybody in this room? Anybody? 40? Keep your hands up. Who's been a believer for 50 years? Anybody? Okay. If you don't want to admit your age, it's okay too. You just, you know, you can put your hand down at any time. How about this? 55 years. A few, okay, 55. 60 years. 65 years. 70 years. Three, 71. <laughs> got a 72, got a 72, got a 72. No, so let's see. Okay, so 71, 71, 72. So keep going. <laughs> 75, 76, 77, 78, 105. No, no, I'm just kidding. No, Jack, I'm just kidding. Wait, Jack, no. How many years, Jack, have you been following the Lord? I love that, yeah. So I guess if my math is right, and I'm a preacher, so that's not fully what we do. I think 79 years, would that be what it is, I, I think? Anybody want to help me out? 80 years? Oh, 80 years. See, once again, I told you. <laughs> that's not my thing. Think about that. 80 years following the Lord. Well, I, let me ask you this. You've been following the Lord that long, trusting in Jesus. I guarantee you, you don't feel like you've gotten everything yet, have you? There's still a long way to go, isn't there? You see, in this very idea of clinging to the Lord, there's also this idea of following the Lord because when you understand how big and how massive God is, you know you're never going to catch Him. There's so much more to know. Uh, Russell Dilday said it this way. He said, A healthy, growing faith discovers that there is always a challenging distance yet out ahead. I heard another pastor say it this way. The more holy you become, the less holy you feel. You see, the longer that you pursue Jesus, the more you realize that you've got a long way to go. I don't have time, so I'm going to just keep going from here. Let me move on to then point number four. I had a good illustration there too, but I'm just going to finish it up. How about this? Number four says Hezekiah consistently, we see Hezekiah consistently obeyed the Lord. The way that this verse ends, it says, but he kept the commands the Lord had commanded Moses. Notice that obedience comes after all those other things, right? You have the trust. You have the clinging to him. You have the following him. And then comes the obedience. 
You see, our tendency is to make obedience the first thing, the ultimate thing. But think of this like a house. Remember how I said that trust is often like a foundation. If you don't lay the foundation of trust, you're not going to get anywhere else. And then after the foundation, you have the, maybe the walls, the support that goes up of both clinging to the Lord, of this faithful pursuit of the Lord. And as you do that, what you then begin to be able to do is lay this roof of obedience. And that very obedience, the willingness to trust in the Lord, to follow his commands, it's only going to be there if you first trust in him and want to follow him. You see, if we start with obedience, those, that very desire to be obedient to him, it's always going to be futile. If we start with that, and we don't first start with trust, with clinging to him, with following him, but when we allow us to lay those things first, what we end up with is a life that is truly pursuing godliness. I love how Eugene Peterson has described this. You've heard me say it before. He calls the pursuit of God long obedience in the same direction. That's what following Jesus is. Long obedience in the same direction. That is, you trust him, you follow him, you cling to him, and you obey him. What you find is, when you look back, you see how much God has really done in your life. I pray that today, that that will be four marks of your life you'd want to be there. Trust, this reliance, clinging to him, um, following him, and then finally obeying him. What's in there? Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the chance that we have to follow you. God, let our very obedience, the desire to to just obey you, God, let it not be what comes first. Let it be first the desire to trust you. This daily focus on clinging to you, saying, God, we're not going to let go. We're here. And as we do that, may you give us the very joy of obedience. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.